would ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. <clears throat> Taken from uh, the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 20. We'll start reading in verse 20 of chapter 20. And I'll read down through verse 28. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink that cup? That I am about to drink. They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand are not mine to grant. But it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The grass withers the flower phase, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. I ask you to please go uh, in prayer for me as I would preach this text. Pray for yourselves also as you sit on the proclamation of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. And they are indeed a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. And we pray your graces be upon us this morning as we consider the great life and love and compassion and humility of our blessed Savior. Be with me as I preach this text. Be with your congregation as they hear, O oh God, lift away from us unbelief. Lift away from us hearts and attitudes that are uncaring or indifferent. And Father, we pray that you will work grace upon grace upon grace for conversions, if they're in here this morning outside of faith, we pray that you would grant salvation. And any here, O oh God, who are in any way caught up in lawlessness and a hardened heart uh, and so overwhelmed by the concerns and cares of this world, they scarce have any time to think about spiritual matters. I do grant, O oh God, your grace to be upon us. Be with me as I preach. Be with the congregation as they hear it in Christ's name. Amen. If we were to talk about one particular characteristic that was essential to living the Christian life in an appropriate fashion, what would that characteristic be? We all recognize the need to exercise our duties as Christians faithfully, such as reading the Bible, such as attending worship, such as spending time in prayer, 
such as exercising the gifts of grace in our lives, all of these things are part and parcel to being a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you were going to name one particular aspect of character that must be true of everybody who is a Christian, if they are going to live the Christian life faithfully, successfully, if you will, what would it be? And I would suggest to you that it would be that of humility. J.C. Ryle asked a question to the church. This is the question. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Are you prepared to take up your cross and follow after the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember Hebrews 13, verses 12 through 13 says this. So Christ also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear his reproach, the reproach that Christ endured. That we identify with Jesus publicly and we identify with Christ bearing the shame that Christ bore as his rejection from the world, as his being despised by the world. As who would recognize that if I'm going to identify with Jesus, that I must acknowledge that I am a sinner in need of God's grace in my life, moment by moment, day by day, if I am going to enjoy the great graces of heaven. He goes on to say this. So what is involved in being a Christian? What is that our religion requires of us? There is a commitment to loving God before anything else. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Christ is to be first in our lives always. And we also have the commitment of loving others or the believers in the body of Christ. Even Jesus upon the cross of Calvary, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even those that we may consider our enemies, <clears throat> we are to love them according to what our Savior taught us. There's a commitment to letting go of grudges. There's a commitment to striving after personal holiness in life. Not on Sunday only. And not just one day a week. But seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We are to strive to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to attend unto worship faithfully. We are to attend unto prayer faithfully. All these things are true of being what it means to be a believer. But then again, Dr. Sanderson, who wrote a book called The Fruit of the Spirit, I think we've studied that in Sunday school before, had a woman come up to him after her services, and she said that she wanted to be a Christian. And he said, do you really? You really want to serve Christ? You really want to be a Christian? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you what's required of you. A total and complete commitment to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. A willingness to part with all things for the sake of the Lord Jesus. A willingness to give up your life for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. He basically tried to talk her out of being a believer. You want her to understand the cost of discipleship. And, of course, she was converted. And all he was not really trying to talk about being a believer. What he was trying to do was to convince her that it's costly. And how is it that we do all of these things? How is it that we trust God with unadulterated trust, 
no matter what we face, no matter what we're dealing with, even when life seems to make no sense to us, it is by embracing Christian humility. As for the proud one, everybody knows this verse, hopefully. Hopefully you know where it is. Habakkuk 2.4. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the just shall live by faith. It is impossible to live by faith apart from the constant practice of humility. Impossible. We see here in the text this morning an expression of the life of Christ that really shows itself in his humility in a very, very wonderful way. And if Christ is our example, as it sets forth in the scriptures that he is our example in this world of how we are to live our lives and how we are to think even, how we are to conduct ourselves, then his example of humility must be ours as well. This morning, as we look at this text, we'd have us to see this because Christian humility is epitomized in the life and service of Jesus Christ. As far as we are concerned as believers, we are to mimic that humility the best that we possibly can. And then above and beyond that, we are to be characterized not by arrogance, not by pride, but by humility. That's who we are to be. Three things this morning. The humility of of Christ is seen in his life. The humility of Christ is seen in his death. And the humility of Christ is seen in his work. The first thing, then, the humility of Christ is seen in his life. Jesus clearly demonstrated that the world's view of greatness is contrary to biblical view of greatness. How does the world define greatness? Well, look at Washington. Look at the success. It's power. It's having a name. It's being in a position of uh, accumulation of possessions, of wealth, whatever the case may happen to be. It's something that sets you off apart from everybody else, that they don't have quite what you have, and they don't have the power that you have. That's the world's view of greatness, is it not? And in so many cases, that view of greatness is contradictory to Christian humility. So that's how the world describes it. However, Christ presents a contrast to us. That's not how God views true humility. That's not how God views true greatness. There's nothing wrong with success. Nothing wrong with things that the world has to offer at all. Nothing wrong with being very, very wealthy. Nothing wrong with those things whatsoever. A lot of the scripture uh, people in, in the Old Testament were very, very successful men as far as the eyes of the world. The problem is when that substitutes in the mind of anyone for what is true greatness. True greatness is seen in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is the supreme example of humility that we are to follow. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to think like Jesus? Do you want to act like Jesus? Do you want to be Christ's example to the world? Then we have to embrace humility. And Christ's service of humility is to be copied. There are two, two examples of it here, or two ways that he does. And the first one is his example of service. You know, if there was ever an individual who gave himself 
to others is Christ. Yet with great tenderness, with great patience, with great loving kindness, even his disciples, again and again and again, his disciples had it wrong. They just were wrong. You remember on the uh, uh, Palm Sunday, which would be today, that they were going into um, uh, Jerusalem, and they were putting their cloths out in front of him. They were singing Hosanna uh, to God in the highest, and the disciples were very, very excited about this because of what was going to happen as far as they understood it. Christ was going to establish the kingdom that day. Israel was going to be as it was in the days of King David and even greater. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. There was no establishment of an earthly kingdom. As a matter of fact, the one who would be king uh, was taken and brutalized, and he was finally killed. That's what happened. To this Jesus. Not at all what they supposed was going to happen. And so Christ then is our example, the excellent example, the only example that we have of what it means to be a truly humble person. You think about most people, politicians today, being escorted into a town, having people shout accolades to them. You're such a great man. You're such a good fellow. Look at all you've accomplished. Look at all you were going to accomplish. Well, they would have eaten it up. And yet Jesus, that's not why he was here. He was here to die. He was here to secure yourself, to secure you, a place in heaven. To set up a kingdom that will never come to an end. Christ again and again, that great example of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. That was reserved for the lowest slave in the household. And there was Christ. So he gives us an example of humility. Jesus also should be a motivation for us for service. Listen to this. There is no job to meal in the church for you to do. If there's a need, then something needs to be done. And any job, we can glorify God, glorify Christ in whatever it is that we do. There was trash on the lawn this morning. Somebody had a picnic, it looked like. And yet, it was a need. And somebody picked it up. Very minimal. Nothing great. No fanfare. But a need. And as we would serve Christ and follow his example and motivation for service through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to recognize that all jobs in the church that need to be done are worthwhile doing. And anyone that would refuse to do something like that, there is a difficulty, it seems to me, with a lack of humility. So Christ is our example. He is our motivation for service in the church, remembering that there is no job that is not worthwhile doing if there's a need in the church. The second thing, then, is the humility of Christ is seen in his death. You hear what the text says here. Even so, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
all things were made through him and for him. That's Christ. All things were made through him and for him, for his pleasure, for his glory. And we read in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and apart from Him, nothing was made that was made. The Creator of all that is. Uh, The one who is delighted uh, in the eyes of the angels. He's delightful to them. And those who have no sin praise the name of Christ. And yet it was this same Jesus that took flesh upon Himself came into the world and was brutalized. Brutalized. And we know in the garden Christ said, Don't you understand, you men with me, that I could call down a legion of angels. Ah, They put an end to this at this moment. But how would the Scriptures be fulfilled? How would redemption be accomplished? This great God of all creation. There, put your sword away. Don't you know, I don't need you to defend me. This great God of all creation came into the world, one adored by the angels, the one celebrated when he was born, that he might accomplish salvation for his people. And I was going to say this at the end. If if you ever have an opportunity to read Thomas Watson, it is worthwhile reading. We've got to set him in the library. Thomas Watson made the point that all of this work of Christ was voluntary. Totally and completely voluntary. As was his custom, he went to the garden. So that this Judas fellow would know where to take the guards and the temple police. They were going to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ and take him and kill him. This great Jesus had glory with the Father before all time, as Christ says in John 17, the glory I had with you before the world was. Glorify your Son with the glory I had with you before the world was. And we understand that there's not a putting aside of divinity. That's not at all what Christ did when he took flesh upon himself. It's not a putting aside of divinity. It was adding on the weakness of human flesh, yet without sin. And so that Christ, as he came into the world, there was a veiling of the greatness of the glory of the Savior. Glorify the Son with the glory I had with you before the world was. There in eternity past, the angels adoring the triune God. We're studying at the Bible study at my house on Wednesday nights, uh, First uh, Peter. And it talks about, Peter says in there, that these great acts of redemption. This great expression of God's grace and mercy, angels long to look into these things, it says. Why? Because the work of God in redemption is a work of absolute, unfiltered, unadulterated love and grace. That this God who is infinitely offended by our sin is a God who loves us infinitely so. And this great God would be one who would redeem us to himself. And the angels delight in seeing this. 
What what a manifestation of love and grace they see here. They long to look into these things because it sees there a greater expression of God's mercy and God's grace to undeserving sinners in the world. They delight in his mercy. They delight in his grace to sinful people who are most undeserving of his grace. A shielding, if you will, a veiling of his glory, but by no means a putting off of his deity. We know Christ was fully God and was fully man at the same time. How do we know that? The Bible tells us. That's how we know that. And we see Jesus doing things that only God can do. We see Jesus forgiving sins. We talked about this in Sunday school. And remember the Pharisees, what type of blasphemy is this man saying here? This man who claims he has the authority to forgive sins, what nonsense is this? This man's a heretic. And nothing short of a heretic. There's no need to listen to him any further. There's no need to pay attention to him any further. No need to regard him at all. As a matter of fact, what needs to be done, he needs to be punished. And you know the story. You know the saying. Because I've quoted it before, and I'm sure you've read it in Scripture. Jesus looks at them and says, okay, what's easiest to say? What's easiest? To say your sins are forgiven or to say take up your mat and walk? Well, obviously, the easiest thing is to say your sins are forgiven because you can't see it. You can't prove it. But Christ says this, in order that you may know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins here on earth, I tell you, take up your mat and go. And he heals the man. Well, no one who's a blasphemer can do such a thing as that. Christ demonstrates his divinity in so many ways. And here, this one is the ability and the willingness to forgive this man his sins. Again, not a setting aside of his deity, but a shielding of his glory that he had with God before the world was we read in the scriptures. And then finally, the humility of Christ is seen in his work of redemption. You imagine the perplexity of the situation if it was left into the hands of the world. How is it possible for people who are sinful men and women and children and who live before God, who is infinite in holiness, how is it possible that they could possibly be made right with God? And it's given to us to figure it out. And we say, well, the animals, they don't substitute. They can't substitute uh, for an individual. You can't offer the blood of an animal for the guilt of an individual for a human being. It just doesn't work. And we look and we search and we find, where is the man righteous enough here on the earth that can do this deed for us? And we start interviews and we look around and we uh, find, well, everybody sinful. Everyone falls short. But there's no one that we can find that would really be adequate uh, to take away our guilt and to pay a ransom to God for that guilt and condemnation. And so uh, we quit looking. And the solution is given to us by God himself. God gives it. 
And so God determines then, as you know the story of the gospel, he determines to redeem a people by sending his son into the world. And there the sinless one, uh, the one who had no guile, the one who had no sin, takes on flesh. They're the perfect substitute. They're the perfect sacrifice. And it was a ransom. And so that when Christ was on the cross of Calvary, it wasn't simply a painful, unpleasant experience. There was that. But when Christ was on the cross of Calvary, there was the belt of God being unleashed upon his son again and again and again and again until the last drop of bitter suffering was fulfilled in the work of Christ upon the cross of Calvary. You're there, you see. You were there if you're a Christian. And so the anguish that Christ experiences and the cries that came from the mouth of our Savior, those were there because of you and because of me. We talked about this in Sunday School as well, the Mel Gibson movie, uh, The Passion of Christ. I didn't see the, uh, the film. But I heard him interviewed after the film was made, and uh, there's a close-up scene uh, of a hand uh, holding the nail and driving the nail into the palm or into the wrist of Christ, into the hand of Christ. And Mel Gibson said that was his hand. That's maybe the only part he has in the movie. And he said that's because he's the one that drove those nails into him. Well, he had some falling out, as you know, you're aware of his life. He made some mistakes following that. Big ones. But he got the point that we were the ones who drove those nails. We were the ones who pierced his side. We were the ones that brought the suffering upon Christ. For it was for our sakes that he suffered. And I know, I know that it was the Lord that chastised him. I know it says, we read in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him that he may redeem a people to himself. But it was because of what we had done, what we do now, what we will do as long as we have breath in our lungs. That's what drove Christ to the cross of Calvary and God's intention to have any people to himself for all time. He did not come to be served, but rather he came to serve and offer this greatest service that we could ever have given to us, the service of redemption. And so that now in him, listen to this, we close our eyes at death and peace because of Jesus. All because of Christ. As I said earlier, it was that that, um, Thomas Watson said that the sufferings of Jesus was all absolutely voluntary. And it was. It's not that Christ somehow began to please the Father more by coming to the cross of Calvary. Jesus is this. Jesus wanted to come. He desired to come. 
He desired to please the Father. He desired to do what was necessary to redeem a people to himself. Quite voluntary. So that even he put his hand, his life into the hands of those that were going to kill him voluntarily. All voluntary. And I said a moment ago that there are no menial jobs in the church. There are absolutely no menial jobs in the church. If something needs to be done, then we do it. But another characteristic I think is true of those who are truly humble before the Lord and would be like Jesus. Ask you this question. How's your prayer life? How's my prayer life? How is the prayer life of Jesus? If there was ever anybody, we'd think, well, he didn't need to pray. He's God in the flesh. And yet he was also truly man. And we see Jesus praying throughout the night. The night of his death, we see him in the garden. Not one hour, not two hours, but three hours praying. And read in one of the Gospels that angels appeared to him, strengthening him. A healthy prayer life is an indication, I think, of two things. The first place is an indication of true faith. Knowing that God hears and knowing that God accepts and knowing that God acts. The second thing is a true indication of humility. As we come to a point in our lives and we recognize this, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do this. I don't have the strength, but God does. God does. And he supports us in times of weakness. We trust him and come to him and ask for his help. He will give it to us. Let's pray.